0: I'm sure we've all been very much uh, appreciating Uh, Professor Donnelly taking us through the book of Esther with its wonderful uh, message about God's providence and we're going to read the last two chapters now of Esther before he uh, preaches to us. So Esther chapter 9 and reading from verse 1 to the end of the book. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples and the the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Porchandatha, and Dalfond, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adelia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vaisatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces?' Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, And on the fourteenth day they rested, and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day, and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day in which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as the day, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on its own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly bound themselves, and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abba Hale, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther bound them, and as they had bound themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his peoples, of the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace. all his people. Amen. Uh, Thus the word of God.
1: And as he said we're coming this evening to the last of our studies from the book of Esther and we'll be looking at chapter 9 and chapter 10. Chapter 10 just the verses at the end. If I had to choose a text I would take those words found in verse 1 of chapter 9. The reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, in the city of Thessalonica, jealous Jews are saying about Paul and Silas, these men have turned the world upside down. And they spoke more truly than they realised. For through Paul's ministry and those of his colleagues, that is what happened. And the fallen world, it's already the wrong way up. And it needs to be turned upside down. If it ever be what God had created it to be. That's what God does when he comes in saving power. That which is present is evil. He turns it upside down. And he changes the evil for good. And as Esther, the book of Esther, comes to a close we see another of God's saving reversals. We can discern in this a picture of the greatest reversal of all, salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And among other things, I'd like to note with you three truths about reversal from this passage which was read for us. First of all, in verses 1 to 16, reversal realized. Reversal realized. Verse 1 of chapter 9, On the very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The reversal. Is realized. Because Esther. And Mordecai. Are now in favor. They are now supported. By those in positions of power. Verse 3. All the officials of the provinces. And satraps. And governors. And royal agents also. Helped. The Jews. Here's a change. A change for the good. The Jews were in danger of being murdered. And now there are those who are acting on their behalf. And as they're supported by these leaders. And by the royal edict. The Jews will kill over 75,000 of those who are coming to massacre them. hate them. This morning we're trying to look at the ethical issue, the holy war in the Old Testament, self-defense against the supporters of Haman, the Agagite, and that man Haman we've seen is the representative of the ancient enemy Of God's people. He's acting on behalf of the devil. He's seen as such by the Jews themselves. And it explains for us, as we had read, the brutal treatment of the ten sons of Haman. They're killed. You read of that in verses 7 to 10. And not only are they killed, but the next day, their bodies, their ten bodies, are exposed, hanging on the gallows in the city. Verses 13 and 14. Why? Why are they killed, and then their bodies are hanging in public? Well, here, friends, Is the component of holy war. This is how holy war was carried on. You go back to Joshua 8.29. And we read that Joshua hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. Later on in Joshua 10.26 about the five Amorite kings who were persecuting Israel. Joshua hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees till evening. This is the way of showing that the enemies of Israel had been conquered, conquered by God. The enemies were to be exposed. The enemies were to be dishonoured so that the completeness of Israel's victory could be made plain. Their disgrace is emphasized. Other people are warned. Or as we said from verse 1, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. They had been helpless. They had been in the grip of a foreign empire, they had been opposed by powerful, cruel enemies, a government edict had been passed for their destruction and suddenly all this is totally changed. They are miraculously delivered. More than that, not only are they delivered But they are triumphing completely over those who had wanted to destroy them. So you see the huge depth of the change that's coming about. They're going to be destroyed by the evil. Now they are destroying the evil on the very day when it's due to happen. What a glorious event this is. And if you think about it, here is a picture of salvation. We are in the grip of the devil. He is aiming to pull us into hell. He is guilty. An awful edict of judgment is standing against us. We are utterly Helpless. In his hands, we are doomed. And then suddenly, suddenly, we're saved in the fullest sense of the word. We're rescued from Satan's power. We're brought into the kingdom of God. All our sins are forgiven. We are blessed with new natures. We are adopted by God as sons and daughters. We are enriched with an everlasting and glorious inheritance. And more than that, the very powers of evil which had threatened us, they themselves, will be exposed to shame and dishonor as they're defeated and doomed. There's the change. There's the complete transformation. Those on top fall down to the bottom of judgment. Those who are desperate suddenly find themselves full of the glory of God. Colossians 2.15 Paul says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to o- open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what's happening. The reversal is realized. We're under the power of the devil, under the power of sin, and suddenly, whenever we come to Christ, that whole position is transformed richly and permanently. We see it here. These Jews are now in triumph. Before that, they had been doomed. God has reversed the situation. And the reversal is clearly realised. And then secondly... In verses seventeen to twenty-two, to the end of the ninth chapter, we see that the reversal is remembered. The reversal is remembered. This part of the chapter tells us about the establishment of the feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M, that comes from the Persian. Word P-U-T, put, which means a lot. Something that you get as you cast the dice. The put appears, the lot. If you read chapter 3 verse 7 following, Haman had cast lots to decide the most propitious day for the massacre of the Jews. He cast the lots. That was his answer. But we are seeing that God is control over all. And so there's a feast now. A feast to celebrate God's overruling. God's triumph. God's confounding of all the plots against his people. Chapter 9 verses 21 and 22. To keep the 14th and 15th days of the month, Adar, year by year, as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another. And gifts to the poor. See the change. The utter transformation. The reversal is remembered in the hearts of the men and women forever. They're rejoicing and thanking God. And this has always been the practice of Israel. Whenever God delivers his people. You remember in Egypt, they had the feast of the Passover, and they kept that feast year after year in their history. They had been doomed, and God delivered them. They remembered it. You see it in the song of Moses and the people in Exodus 15. After the victory at the Red Sea, they praised God and rejoice together. In Joshua 8, you read of the covenant renewal after Jericho and Ai. They kept on remembering and giving thanks to God for those victories over a mighty enemy. Judges 5, you see the song of Deborah and Barak After their victory over Caesarea, you see it in many Psalms, rejoicing at the victory, at the triumph which God gives His people, apparently doomed. It's a time of rejoicing, of remembering what God had saved them from and what God had saved them for. The key phrase. You'll see it in verse 22. The days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies. Remember that phrase. Got relief from their enemies. These are echoes of completed redemption. Right back in Deuteronomy 12, Moses tells Israel. To gather in one place for worship. Verse verse 10. When the Lord gives you rest from all your enemies around you. The same phrase. Joshua 11.23. The sign of a conquest succeeding. When the land had rest from war. David makes plans for the temple. Second Samuel 7.1 When the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So you see it, goes, it comes out again and again and again in the history of Israel. Time after time the Lord has come and he's given deliverance rest from our enemies. And so it's happened here. It's happened in this land. It's a time For celebration, for remembrance, for worship, for thanksgiving, for gladness. Verse 28. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. They're remembering God's goodness to them. Now it's true that this feast is new, and it's not one that is specifically commanded to them by God. It was instituted by Esther and Mordecai. It's not compulsory on the people of God throughout their history. The religious element in it seems muted. It's very much a holiday. There's a party atmosphere. And yet, the principle is valid. God's people are to remember. God's people are to give thanks to Him for His salvation. And all that it contains, there's no parallel for the Christians here than what God has done for them. And above them all, they have their great commanded remembrance: the Lord's city. Yes, I'm sorry. The Lord's supper. The Lord's supper. Do you remember the word in remembrance. In remembrance. Martin Luther said. After he had been at the Lord's table. I feel as if Jesus had died. Only yesterday. It was so real to him. So powerful to him. It spoke to him. Remembering. The Lord's day. Remembrance. Weekly remembrance. Remembrance. And we need to remember that it's weekly remembrance of three things. I'll not take time to try to give the evidence. But the Lord's day is the weekly remembrance of creation. It's the weekly remembrance of resurrection. And it's the weekly anticipation of heaven. And on this day, we remember to ourselves The Lord has made us and this world in which we live. The Lord has redeemed us in Christ. The Lord will raise us from the dead. And we will live with God forever in heaven. As a redeemed people, they meet together to to exhibit what we find in verse 19. Feasting and gladness. Have we this experience of gladness, gladness together in our Christian lives? Is it seen in us? Are we attracting people to our Savior by living out the joy for which we're called to to experience? It's part of our witness. Reversal. Remembered. And then, lastly, thirdly, in the three verses of chapter 10, we have reversal reconsidered, realized, remembered, and reconsidered. In these three verses, chapter 10 ends the book of Esther on a slightly jarring note. Here's what it says. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. Why are these words in the Bible? What are they for? What is God doing with these words in our minds and hearts as we read them and pray them over? For one thing, these people of God were never to forget that in their land, Ahasuerus was still king. Ahasuerus was still ruling. Ahasuerus was still in power. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land. His interests are of supreme importance. He governs the whole nation, the whole empire. Mordecai is powerful, but in verses 2 and 3, we're told that Mordecai was second in rank. We're told that the king advanced him to high honor. It was the king doing it. It was wonderful for God's people to have Mordecai as prime minister, Look at those verses again. Mordecai was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. But in the final analysis, he is ruled at the choice of the king. The king rules. And you remember, I'm sure, that when Esther became queen, we read in chapter 2, verse 18, that her husband granted remission of taxes to provinces. But now he withdraws that favor. He cancels that law. And no one can prevent him. Verse 1 of chapter 10, King Ahasuerus imposed tax. On the land and on the coastlands. He cancelled what he'd done. He brings it back again, and his power is in control. And if this is not a complete reversal that we've been thinking about, it's certainly not a final reversal. It's not an ultimate reversal. Ahasuerus is still married to Esther. But he may change his mind again. He may take a new queen tomorrow, as he did with her. He may be succeeded, as he soon was, by another emperor. Mordecai is a man of God, to a certain extent. But Mordecai will grow old, and he will die. And that will be the end of him. The Jewish people have been delivered for this time, but there's going to be much suffering ahead for Jewish people. So here we have the reversal. The reversal of the people of God. But it's not complete. It's not permanent. It's not dependable. It's not God delivering and redeeming his people totally and forever. And I think, friends, that that is pointing us forward to the ultimate reversal through the full revelation when the deliverer will not be second in rank. He will be first. He will not be under a Ahasuerus, but he will be the king himself. He will not grow old and die in an empire basically unchanged. But he will live and reign forever in a perfect, everlasting world. That's the change. And when we reconsider this reversal, it's clear to us that more is needed. Good though it was. The blood of the people of God having been saved for this time, it's not complete, it's not secure, it's limited, and far, far more needs to come. At the moment of crisis, When he came to earth, the one, the Redeemer who is to come will not simply destroy the enemies of his people, but he will destroy their ancient enmity. At the moment of crisis, holy war will be declared and has been declared. And that holy war is different from this war. That holy war, in a sense, is by God the Father on his beloved Son. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin." Who knew no sin. Jesus Christ came to earth. And the father. Looked at his beloved son. And at Calvary. He made him. To be sin. In Esther we read of the bodies of the enemies. Hanging in shame. The next day. On pieces of wood. Didn't we? But the body of Jesus, exposed to cosmic shame, will hang, did hang. We read in Deuteronomy 21 23 that a hanged man is cursed by God. And the Son of God in those hours was a hanged man, and he was raised by God to ultimate. Everlasting victory. And friends, that's how this wonderful book ends. So much more full of meaning for us as Christians. In a sense, it seems as if we're still living in a hostile empire. We've prayed about that already this evening. In a sense, we're surrounded and threatened by modern versions of Ahasuerus and Haman. But in fact, this is not the case. Our security doesn't rest on Mordecai to plead our cause before Ahasuerus. Our security rests on Jesus Christ, who represents us continually before the throne of God, His Father. The reversal reconsidered, and my fr- my prayer, friends, is that that be true for each of us. That each of us as Christ, our will of Christ, as our Advocate and our Saviour. This evening, we're leaving the book of Esther. What would I like you to take away from the book? These nine studies. Very simply, I'd like you to take away the last sentence of the whole book. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That's how the book ends. God's deliverer. The one he sends. The one who can rescue him. What is it true of him for you and for me if we're in Christ? He sought. He seeks. He will seek the welfare of his people and he spoke peace and he will speak peace to all his people. Let's take those two clauses from this book and put them in our hearts to hold us up. Let us bow in prayer. Dear Father in Heaven how we thank you for this book so often neglected so much in it that we have to wrestle to grasp and yet so much that is clear and true And Father we thank you for what is pointed to here we thank you we can see what is imperfect and partial but worthwhile and good and blessed by you and leading us forward. And we pray, Lord, that as we leave this book we will look forward and look upward and rest always on this one of whom we're told in the closing words and that we may know in our own hearts and lives the blessing which comes from him who seeks the welfare of his people. and who who speaks peace to all his people. Lord, each one of us here may need to hear those words in different ways. We may be struggling. We may be anxious. We may feel a burden regarding the future. O Lord, help us to rest on you, seeking our welfare and speaking peace to us. We ask it in Jesus' name, and for his sake, amen.